we're going to look to, together this morning at 1 Timothy chapter 2, and uh, as Nathaniel read to you from verses uh, 5 and 6, for there is one, media, one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, <coughs> who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Just before I came in, Nathaniel was asking me, well, what was I preaching on this morning? So I'm going to give you a lot of M's now, right? Okay? Take note when I start speaking about M's, okay? It's the man. It's the mission. It's the mediator. It's the motive and the method. Okay? Got all those? If I was to test, you know, I wonder how many of you would remember those. But that is what uh, comes out um, of this verse, I think. And uh, in many ways, all of those themes could actually be taken. I think it's true to say, isn't it, that um, most people, or most Christians at any rate, if they want to defend Jesus, they want to defend the deity of Christ. It's hard to find many people who disagree with the humanity of Jesus, isn't it? The fact that he was a man. You know, an historical person over 2,000 years ago. People of the world generally will accept this. vast proportion of people will at any rate. But to believe in the deity of Christ, to believe that Jesus is God, is something that is completely radical, and people have difficulty in accepting it. I remember when I was working in Morganite, when Morganite came down from London. <coughs> I went to work in Morganite down in Transamlet um, And uh, there was a Christian guy there. He hadn't been converted that long. I hadn't been converted very much, or very long either, only a couple of, a couple of months or about a year or something like that. And uh, I could see him. He was in conversation with uh, some people on a table. And uh, I thought, oh, well, go and see what they're talking about and have lunch with them. So I went over and he was arguing the case for the deity of Christ. He was so heated in his argument for the deity of Christ that he completely forgot about the humanity of Christ. They were trying to say he was a man. No, no, he was God. You see? And so uh, I, I, I sort of uh, got involved in this conversation and uh, the direction was changed somewhat. But the whole point is that it's very easy for us, isn't it, to want to defend the deity of Christ. And sometimes we don't give as much attention to the humanity of Christ that Jesus was a man. And in many ways, when you think about Jesus, you know, when he was born, what was he? He was a baby, like any other baby, fed by his mother, looked after, could be embraced and cuddled like any other baby. No difference whatsoever. Nobody came and said, whoa, this is, uh, you know, God incarnate. They had prophecies that were fulfilled concerning him. And as we know, various people came to see Jesus and acknowledge who Jesus was. But it wasn't quite like that. When they looked at him, they just saw a baby. And when Jesus grew up, he didn't look like any other person, you know. He looked exactly, he didn't look any different from any other person. He looked exactly like every other person. You know, when he went down to Jerusalem and he was 12 and they went uh, 
into the into the temple, and he was got into debate with the scribes and uh, the religious leaders of the day, isn't it? I mean, they didn't look at him in any other way than that he was a young boy, very very clever, perhaps, and endowed with great wisdom and understanding. But they didn't see him any different. And when he would have walked around the village that he lived in, people would have looked at him and they would have said, you know, this is the son of Joseph and Mary. That's how they would have seen him. They wouldn't have thought to themselves, well, he is different from other men. There wouldn't have been anything about him remarkable that would have distinguished him from any other person. And up to the age of 30, people could have walked past him and seen him just as any other man. They would have known that he was a carpenter. They might have seen him, perhaps, cutting wood up and all kinds of things. But it wasn't until the age of 30 that he became distinguished in the sense of people started to realize that this Jesus was something more than just a man. But the fact is that when you looked at him and you saw him, he was a man. The fact that he was a man that had come into this world, they, they didn't realize, they, they thought that his conception and his birth was exactly the same as any other man. But we know different, don't we? We know that he was born of Mary, but he was conceived by the Spirit of God. But here is Jesus now as a man living in this world. And here is the Apostle Paul wanting to emphasize the fact that Jesus is the mediator between God and man. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The emphasis upon the man. This is the emphasis. There is a reason behind the emphasis of him being a man. He had to be a man in order to be able to die. He had to be a man in order to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. He had to become a man. This is why in verse 15 you can see here where the apostle has been saying, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. You see, he, he existed before he ever came into the world. He came into the world but he came in as a man. And so what you find is the reason why he has come, he was given a particular mission. So he was set aside by God to come into this world. How often do you read, especially in John's Gospel, that he was sent into this world? You know, in John chapter 14 and verse 3, isn't it? When Jesus is praying, you're so conscious of the fact that he had been sent into the world. For this is life eternal, that they might know you, whom to know is life eternal. And for Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So here he is praying to his Father, and he acknowledges that his Father has sent him into the world. Or if you read in Galatians 4 and verse 4, isn't it, where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, and he says to them like this, isn't it? that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. It was God who sent his Son. Here was his Son, the Father rather, commissioning his Son to come into this world, and at a certain point in time, 
God sent him into the world. The time has come. The time has arrived. And therefore, here is the conception. Here in Mary's womb was the conception of a man who was coming into this world to redeem sinful man. And so this Jesus comes into the world. And he comes with this mission. And of course, when you have to ask the question, well, why, you know, does he need to be a man? Well, he had to live out a life that was befitting a man, a perfect, moral, righteous life. And this is what he did. But we always need to remind ourselves, don't we, constantly, that he was a man. And all of his appearances was as a man. So when we look at Jesus, isn't it? Now, when Jesus lived as a man, he had to go through all the experiences that men go through. The difficulties, the problems, and he had to live purely as a man. There's an interesting thing is, you see, that Jesus never drew upon his divine nature or the fact that he was God to overcome any problem that he was ever confronted with. And there is a reason why he never used his divine nature and his divine powers. Because he had to live as a man. It would be unfair for him to have lived and to every time he got into a problem and into a difficulty or when he was in opposition with people against him all the time that he used his divine nature to get out of that problem and that dilemma it's a bit like um, looking at superman isn't it you know when i was a kid i used to take papers around here brook street down street and sybil street and some of you will remember that uh, marvel comics these now, the children here, isn't it? They remember the Marvel men, the superheroes and all of this, don't they? Because uh, they see it now on television, don't they? You know, either in cartoon form or in other forms now, isn't it? But the Marvel men originally, isn't it? They were, you know, in comics. And I remember when I used to walk around, somebody could afford a comic. I'd be looking at the comic Marvel men. Yeah, let's have a quick look, you know, before I get to the next house. Superman, isn't it? Clark Kent, you know, glasses, whoop, glasses, suit, work in the office. Nobody could tell he was Superman. It was all concealed, wasn't it? But if you were to say to somebody, oh, look, you, you know, you should be able to overcome certain things, you know, that Clark Kent could overcome. But he could overcome them because, you know, he could become Superman, couldn't he? But how unfair would that be to compare an ordinary person with Superman? And you know, when you think about Jesus, isn't it? It would be an unfair comparison, wouldn't it? That if Jesus, with all the difficulties and the trials that he went through, if he just exercised his divine nature to overcome the problems. You think of the writer to the Hebrews for a moment, isn't it? When he's talking about our great high priest and he wants to describe him. He says, we are not a high priest who cannot be touched or cannot sympathize you know, with our situation. Why? why? Why can't he be untouched, as it were? How is it that he, he can't not sympathize with our situation? Because as a man, he lived as a man. And then the writer goes on to say, and he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. 
Now, wouldn't it be unfair for the writer to be saying that Jesus overcame by the exercising of his divine power? Because we read in James, don't we, that God cannot be tempted with evil or with sin. God cannot be tempted to do that which is wrong or evil. So if Jesus relied purely upon his divine nature when the temptation came, it wouldn't really be a temptation, would it? Because he couldn't be tempted as God. But he could be tempted as a man. And so he was tempted in all points, every point, every aspect of his life. He was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. As a man, he overcame all sin. He had that ability. He refused sin in every detail, even though he was tempted in every point, like as we are. But as a man, he continued to live that righteous moral life. He didn't, as it were, conceive, you know, and give way and fall, as it were, at that temptation. Not like the first Adam. He didn't fall. But he continued in that state and in that condition. And so he lived as a man. But some people will say, well, what about the miracles that he performed? Doesn't that make a declaration of his deity, the fact that he exercises divine abilities to carry out miracles? Well, is that true? Jesus is not the only one mentioned in the Bible who performed miracles. Who else performed miracles? In the Old Testament, you've got the prophets, haven't you? Look at uh, Elijah and Elisha, Moses and others. They performed miracles, but they didn't do it by his own, their own power. Or you think, and you come into the New Testament, isn't it? Who performed miracles after Jesus left this world? Didn't his apostles do it? Didn't his apostles perform miracles before he left this world? But didn't he, after, after, after the, uh, Jesus had gone, the apostles continued to perform miracles? Do you remember when Peter healed that lame man? When he was in the temple, and then all these people, they're amazed, they come up to him, and they say, oh, you know, the, this is something amazing. And he says, don't think that it's by our own power that we've done this, you know? It is God who has done it. We are just those who are instruments. God did it through us. It is his power that has done this. It's a bit like Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night, isn't it? It says, no man can do these things that you were doing, that is the miracles that he was performing, unless God is with him. He recognized that the miracles that he performed wasn't by Jesus himself, but it was because God was with him. And they recognized that anybody who performed miracles, it was a definite declaration that God was with that person. You know, so the prophets and the apostles and these, it was an evidence, a declaration that God was present with these particular people in doing these things. Because you get examples, don't you, in the scriptures where, you know, when his disciples came to him and they want to know when he's coming again, when all these things are going to happen in Jerusalem and things like this. And he said, it hasn't been given unto me to know these things. It's only the Father knows. Now, we know that his divine nature, he was omniscient, he knew everything. He could have drawn upon his divine nature to exercise himself in knowing the time. Because he was God. 
but there was a refusal to call upon his divine nature, but to use his human nature and say, I don't know. He didn't know because he was living as a man. Or if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, he says, not by my own power, but by the finger of God, by the power of God. Well, you think of Paul writing to the church in Philippi. And do you remember those great verses uh, that I want to show to us, the coming of Jesus into the world, isn't it? And I need to uh, go back to this for a second because there's a few verses that I want to read. In chapter 2, let me just read these to you for a moment. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery or a thing to be grasped, to be equal with God. In other words, he didn't want to hang on to that equality that he had with God as he lived and existed before he ever came into this world, okay? But made himself of no reputation, taking what? The form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You see, his humanity, he lived as a man, only as a man in this world. And this is why Paul here wants to emphasize that the mediator between God and man is what? It's the man, Christ Jesus. He doesn't say the God-man, he doesn't say God, but he says it is the man, Christ Jesus. He was the one who was going to be the mediator between God and man. And so this man became the mediator. The mediator between God and man. Well, you know, if we ask the question, well, what is a mediator? You know, today perhaps they, they wouldn't use this word. They might consider it to be a bit too old-fashioned to use it. You know, they would say, oh, an arbitrator. And the, the role of the mediator or arbitrator, well, what does he do? Well, if you've got two opposing parties one on the left and one on the right, that they're against each other and they stop talking because, you know, there's friction between them and they can't agree, you know. You, you see it in political parties, but you, you also see it today, don't you, you know, with the problems that are arising, you know, in the NHS, with teachers, with all kinds of things that's going on, isn't it, where you've got, you know, people now wanting more money and the government saying, oh, we're not talking to them, and so you've got these two. And what they would tend to do is they would have an arbitrator and, a mediator would come between the two to bring them around the table to talk, to bring them onto that table in order that they might arbitrate to talk to both parties to bring them back together. And that's the picture of a mediator that we would have today. But that is where that particular analogy falls down, doesn't it? Is that he can only bring these two opposing parties and act in between. They've got gripes on both sides, and he's trying to reconcile the two together. But the point is here that when Jesus acts as mediator, he acts on our behalf. Because the problem isn't that God has fallen out with us in that sense, that he has, wants nothing more to do with us, as we'll see. But the fact is that man has rebelled against God. He stands in opposition against God. When Adam was in the Garden of Eden with Eve, isn't it? And they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they sinned against God. And there was this 
friction that came in between God and man at that moment of time because sin had entered into the world. And how can this, this sinful man now have a relationship with a holy God? How was it possible? There was a breakdown upon that relationship between God and man. That was the, the severance, the split. Man continues in that state, doesn't he? I mean, who would look at the world and think that the world is becoming a better place? You know, they've tried to tell us the lie, haven't they, that things are getting better. Things are improving. Man is evolving. Man is on his upward trajectory, isn't he? It's getting better and improving in all kinds of ways. But yet, is that true when we look at the world today? Is it any safer than what it was before? With what has happened in Russia and Ukraine, the situation there. You see, the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about, doesn't it, is the fact that there is sin here. There is sin in this world. You know, where do wars come from, says James? They come from your lust at war within your souls. This is where the conflict is. Man is a sinful person. There was uh, an ideology, wasn't there, that uh, when the, the Iron Curtain broke down and the Bamboo Curtain broke down, you know, that by the West embracing, you know, both Russia and China, that, you know, by embracing them and bringing them into the community of nations, as it were, you know, that they would imbibe from the West, you know, the West's democratic idea of society and civil rights and things like this. Well, we know that's a joke, don't we? You know, with what has taken place. What an eye-opener it is. You've only got to listen to commentators nowadays, isn't it, talking about how easily they were deceived. You know, they thought, oh, by doing this, embracing them, they would become like us. But they didn't realize, you know, that authoritarianism, isn't it, doesn't want to become democratic. It doesn't want to allow people's freedom. They want to rule from the top, and that's it. And sometimes, isn't it, some things are very open, like Russia going to war with Ukraine. But then there's other things, isn't it, where there's subterfuge. It's underneath the surface, isn't it, things that are happening, taking place in the world today. The influence of China in Africa. All of these things that are going on. You think for a moment of what happened before the First World War, uh, Second World War, rather. Neville Chamberlain comes back, doesn't he? And probably most of us have seen the pictures. It's been used time and time again of him coming down off the plane and he's got a piece of paper in his hand and he's waving the piece of paper. Appeasement, peace in our age. In our time, whoa, wasn't he gullible? Wasn't he taken in by Hitler? Didn't he believe the big lie? Forgot that sin is in the world. Leave it to one side. Don't talk about it, you know. Pretend it's not there. Forget about it. Churchill had a better idea and concept of man's nature, didn't he? He knew that Hitler was a dictator, War was inevitable. But the whole point is this, isn't it? That sin has come into the world. And we now live in a sinful world. And we live in a situation where we, mankind, is in opposition to God. 
And there is this necessity and this need for a mediator between God and man. For one to take hold upon man, to bring him back into God, to have a hand with God and have a hand with man and bring them back together. And this is what the apostle is saying here. He is saying there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. This man is able to bring us back. This man is to be able to act as a mediator. Outside of this man, we cannot approach God. But you see the motive and the method that he's using here is that what you find is that it says, who gave himself a ransom for all. The motivation for Jesus was the mission that his father had given to him on the one hand, but on the other hand, the mission itself was in order that he might save or offer himself as a ransom for sin. Jesus said, didn't he, that I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. When was it lost? It was lost in the Garden of Eden when man sinned and rebelled against God and mankind was lost. We read, don't we, that, you know, when Adam sinned, what happened? Death came in. But what has happened since? The second Adam has come. Come to deal with sin. To have a new humanity. To create this new humanity where people are born of the Spirit of God, where people are changed and transformed by the Spirit of God. Come to recreate a new humanity. And here is the apostle saying, you know, that he has come, his motivation was to seek and to save that which was lost. In verse 15, again, going back to that, isn't it, in chapter 1. This is a faithful saying, a worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. For what? To save sinners. That's the reason. To save sinners, not the righteous, not the moral, but those who have sinned and rebelled against God. Those who live in perpetual sin. He has come to save sinners. All of us have sinned. There's not one of us in this room today who hasn't sinned. But Jesus has come, you see, to become a ransom for our sin. And we all know what a ransom is, don't we? We all know what it's like you know, to hear about people who are being kidnapped and people who have to pay ransoms in order to retrieve that person who has been kidnapped. But let me give you an illustration from a building, okay? Not unusual. If you buy a piece of land and somebody owns a strip of land, there was a piece up in uh, Reed of Row not long ago that I looked at, and the guy had come along and he had bought two meters of footpath in front of this land. That two meters of footpath becomes what is called a ransom strip. You cannot build on that other side of that two meters unless you have the right, which you usually have to pay a ransom for in order to cross over that land. And there is what is called a Cambridge ruling. The Cambridge ruling is this, that you have to pay 30% of the value of the land to the person who owns the ransom strip. So you can imagine now, these acres that would be on the land, 
the guy with two meters of land, which is not much more than this, had the right to claim 30% of the value of the land. There was a famous event down in Swansea, down in the, towards the Mumbles there at one time, where Swansea Council had granted planning on this field, and they were building big houses. Probably the houses would be sold now for about six, seven hundred thousand each. And they built a number of these houses there. And after they'd built them, they put the road in, and a little later on, somebody comes along and he says, oh, look, he said, you've built a road over my land. And there was, as you can see, a lot of controversy about this because the council should never have given planning. And the guy claimed millions because nobody could get over that road because the guy owned it. Well, the whole thing is this, isn't it? Between us and God, there is this gap. But you see, Jesus has come to pay the ransom for us to be able to bridge the gap, to come over the gap between us and God in order that we might be able to come before God, that we might be able to come into the presence of God. The ransom's been paid. The way is open. It's almost like Jesus saying, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father but by me. There is one mediator, only one. Nobody can come to God unless they come through and over Jesus to get to God. But we can thank God, can't we, that there is at least one mediator. We don't need to go to Mary. We don't need to go to angels. We don't need to go to saints. There is one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. He is the one, the sole bridge that exists in this world that can bring us from this world into heaven, into glory, into that new creation. We can come through Jesus because there is one mediator. And when we come to Jesus, isn't it? We can find that mediator. And how would we come? Well, he says about these particular people, for this is good and acceptable in verses 3 and 4, in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, the way in which you come before God is through the knowledge of the truth by knowing. And the only way in which you can know is by realizing that there is a mediator between God and man. This is why it's imperative, isn't it, for preaching, it's imperative for teaching, it's imperative to understand the significance of this man, Christ Jesus, who has bridged the gap between us and God, who allows us to come, who has ransomed our sin, who has paid the price for our sin, who has borne our sin in his own body on the tree, who has offered himself as a sacrifice, for our sin. And so he has paid the price that you and I can come back to God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? There is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. 